Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and that Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to elders and custodians past, present and emerging and to those of the lands that this podcast reaches. As I embark on this process of speaking and listening, I'm doing so in the home of one of the longest continuous cultures of oral storytelling on the planet. The performance works in particular I'm always hiding as well. Like, mm. There's like an intensity of my presence in my voice, specifically because the things I, I've been doing involve my voice a lot, mm. singing or speaking. But there's also, I'm realising, a kind of push and pull between like, yes, my body's here or my voice is here, but I'm hiding in some way. Like mm. my hand is obscuring my face or this costume I'm wearing is kind of hiding my identity in in some way and I think it is that need for like I want to be able to connect Mm. but at the same time like have a sense of there is a boundary or there is still sovereignty or like I'm doing this for myself in myself. Hi I'm Ty Snaith and this is A World of One's Own, a series of conversations with women and non-binary artists I respect and admire. In each of these conversations, we attempt to break down the how and why of what we make. Together, we look at physical processes and how they relate not only to outcomes, but also connect to the unconscious or non-visual parallels and needs in our lives. Today, I'm speaking with Archie Barry. Archie is a non-binary, interdisciplinary artist, even though the term non-binary is not quite a sufficient definition for them, which we'll talk about more later on. Archie's practice explores the slipperiness of language and the very human impulse we have to share our feelings. When I was listening back to this conversation, I noticed that my voice changed. It was almost like I was unconsciously trying to match Archie's thoughtful, considered manner. It made me think about the empathy involved between an audience member and an artist and the way that our voices can actually express a lot about us and our feelings. Everything is pushing everything away. Everything is pushing everything away. This body is not real. This body is not fake. This body is not real. This body is not fake. Nothing touches anything. Nothing touches anything. Float. Don't walk. Float. Don't walk. This body is not real. This body is not fake. This body is not real. This body is not fake. This is an untitled piece of music that Archie kindly supplied us with as a little taste of what they do. Archie described it as an auditory descendant of the video piece Tartsache. It's a captivating snippet, but Archie's artwork isn't really something you can experience in a podcast. Archie's works are best experienced in a room full of people, responding to the space and the atmosphere they create. Now, Archie, I was thinking before um, we started what to introduce you as in terms of your practice. 
For me, the first thing that comes to mind is performance. Is that how you describe yourself? Um, the two forms that I've come to describe my practice by when people ask what I do is performance and video. Hmm. But I'm realising more and more that there's a lot of things surrounding that and underneath that which are equally, if not more, important. So I write a lot, which I don't really speak about very often, and that writing's really important. Yeah. Um, and I also make music, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's good. It's kind of like sub subcategories, but it's hard to list them all at once, isn't it? Yeah, they're like subcategories and pre-categories, <laughs> pre-categories. like the things that lead to the other things yeah. that people know about. Yeah. Almost like underpinnings or, um, yeah, a big part of the process as much as the titles. But it's funny how we give each other titles. Yeah, it's um, really As artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's because I think, um, well, performance for me suggests that you are using yourself in your work, which is something that, I mean, I guess I do as well in some ways, but I would never call myself a, a performance artist. Mm. Um, but using yourself in your work comes with lots of different challenges. Mm-hmm. And I guess, yeah, I wanted to ask what, you know, what informs your work in terms of yourself or not, just what informs your work, like where does it start from? That's such a massive question. Sorry. <laughs> you can break it down if it's too hard. What mm. uh, um, Does yourself inform your work? Like does it come from you? Uh, yeah, definitely. And I think very consciously so it comes from autobiography and I don't know how apparent that is um, because I feel like I make a thing and then a lot of people give me feedback of how they can relate to that or like especially the performance work that I've done recently people tend to have like an uh, immediate like there is a response as like an immediate like people want to tell me how they felt during the thing Mm. so it becomes something that other people can relate to in their own way often on an emotional level Mm. but um it certainly comes from my experience of being in the world and my history and my upbringing definitely I mean, I saw one of those performances and had that exact response. Well, not, I mean, everyone has a different response, but I saw your performance at Acker and I'm pretty sure it was Hypnic is the one with the, is it Hypnic? Is mm-hmm. that how you say it? With the mouth and you use a kind of prosthetic lip. Is that right? Yeah, it's a little prosthetic cast of my nose, upper lip and bottom lip. Yeah, and it's quite, um, I mean, it's it's actually really difficult for me to put into words, which is rare. But for me, it was quite discombobulating, but very um, captivating, and mm. and and really emotional. And I actually mm. was one of those people that felt, and I know I've already said this to you off off air, but um, felt quite emotional witnessing it, mm-hmm. and privileged witnessing it, which is a funny thing to um, feel. You know, because you, usually with a performance, you there's this sort of exchange whereby you're the audience and the performer is you. You know, you partake in this exchange. It's quite standard, but it didn't feel standard with you. You know, it felt like something quite special. But do you think about that when you're crafting a when you're crafting that kind of performance? Do you think about the way the audience is going to consume it? <laughs> um, No, I Mm. I actually don't, and especially, like, with that work Mm. and performance things that have devised since then, it's like other people don't sort of 
come into my mind in the crafting of the thing. It's a very solitary process. Um, I just kind of get a little bit obsessed over one idea and then kind of work that over in my head over and over and over and how's it going to like feel in my body mm. is what I think about. Mm. And so then when people have a response, it's always like, oh, holy crap. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, not it worked, but it's like just... it's often been really unexpected. Like mm. when I first did that performance, I had... I didn't anticipate what it would feel like for other people. And at the end, when I saw people crying, I was like, mm. wow, that um, did something that mm. I wasn't aware it would do. So It's pretty amazing because it's especially if you haven't calculatedly done that, you know, it's purely your your intense feeling with yourself has translated across some kind of weird human um, empathy mm. highway or something. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about saying that, but it's sort of what it is. Like it's, um, and it's unspoken that 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 empathy highway that we share is like, you can feel it sometimes between people. You can you can't see it, but it was definitely in that room. Um, and it's almost like it's kind of addictive. Like people want more of that, and I I think that that's what's going to make you a super successful artist. Is that that's very difficult to um tap into. Um, and especially when, for me, I find it just absolutely amazing with your work and fascinating that it must be such a big process for you, like, and kind of full on to be putting yourself in front of, you know, in that in that frame, in front of an audience, exploring those things, you know, mm. publicly. I, I mean, I can't imagine that as a process. Yeah, and I think, like, the performance works in particular, I'm always hiding as well like mm. there's like an intensity of my presence in my voice specifically because the things I'd, I've been doing involve my voice a lot mm. singing or speaking but there's also I'm realizing always like a a kind of push and pull between like yes my body's here or my voice is here but I'm hiding in some way like mm. my hand is obscuring my face or um, this costume I'm wearing is kind of hiding my identity in, in some way. And I think it is that need mm. for, like, I want to be able to connect yeah. but at the same time, like, have a sense of there is a boundary or there is still sovereignty or, like, I'm doing this for myself, in myself. and You're only allowed to see so much. Yeah. All the things that you choose yeah. to put forward, which is, mm. I guess, what all artists do. You construct that identity through your artwork and often people think they know you but mm. perhaps that's just what you want them to know of you. I mean, mm. where do you draw that boundary? I mean, how, how much of you do you want people to know? Um, I think it's so contextual. Like mm. there's things that I will tell some people and not other people. There's mm. things that I will like share in specific circumstances w when it feels safe mm -hmm. and then there's other circumstances where actually it's not appropriate. So I think it's just like an ongoing um, back and forth and like re realising where it is okay and not okay to be particular forms of self, which sounds kind of screwed, <laughs> but that's just the world really. Yeah. Um, because, like, I I feel that a lot of the things that I make are funny, mm. but they're also really painful. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's an, odd, it's an odd mix. Mm, so it's, like, the pain part that people are like, oh, I feel that, like, mm. that's a universal human experience, like feelings of isolation or 
ostracization or alienation or whatever it mm-hmm. is that people pick up from the things that I do. Um, but being able to speak to that unanimous, like in a uncensored way is can be really vulnerable or re-traumatize, re-traumatizing. So, yeah. yeah, it has to be like case by case. Yeah, yeah. And you assess, I guess, how you're feeling at the time as well and mm. how much you can take. Like mm. you must have to sort of re- you know, re-energise between those things. I can only imagine how zapping that kind of a performance is. I mean, any performer it is, but particularly those very personal performances. I, I actually find them energising. Ah. <laughs> so that, well, that's why you do it then, I guess. Isn't it? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't really know why I do it, and maybe mm. that's, like, common for artists. We don't really know why it is that we're compelled to do what we do. I've only really been making performances for the last two years, and after the first performance that I think was quite, um, had a similar kind of capacity or like agency or something to connect with people, mm-hmm. um, I just felt entirely different in my body. And it was a really like grounding experience. That's so amazing. I was like, oh yeah, keep oh, doing Keep that. doing this. <laughs> See where this goes. Yeah. And I mean, I guess really just cutting to the chase of of your body, it's something that is changing at the moment and something that you're consciously um, evolving, I guess is one way to put it. And correct me if I'm wrong at any time. Mm. Um, But how does that affect your work, you know, your body evolving through this period of your life? How can you see that affecting your work or changing your work, you know, or or not at all? Or does it become part of your work? Mm. Um, it's good it'll just take me a minute to gather my response Um, yeah because that is like quintessential or like that is the material substance um, of a lot of my work but I'm noticing like for me what I'm really interested in understanding and thinking about and writing about and talking about Mm. is having the ability and the right to be uh, hidden Hmm. because for pretty much the entirety of kind of a Western history, gender nonconformity is equated to evidence, like you need Hmm. to prove yourself somehow. Hmm. Like scientific kind of. Scientific, but also I think just in the way that it's spoken about, like in common rhetoric of sort of, oh, how long have you felt that way? Or was this a thing you knew since childhood or whatever? And that desire to really like pinpoint an essential self that's been there for, you know, your Uh, life or whatever. I think it's um, limiting Mm. and it also is it it requires people to kind of divulge something of themselves that's so precious and important and core um, that we don't ask everyone. No. So it's kind of uh, invasive as well. So Most people have the urge to do that, right? What do you mean? Do most people have the urge to do that to you, to ask about the process? I think people probably are aware that I have, like, boundaries around speaking on that sure i don't get us that stuff too often but yeah it comes up from time to time it comes up with family it comes up with employers it comes up in the art world for mm. sure um, I'm, i mean I, as i said like if i say anything that mm. and i think it's 
I think it's also important to talk about things so that other people can understand, you know, you and your place in the world and your work because part of it is, as I understand it, difficult just being all lumped into one category when there's so many different myriad forms of gender nonconformity and queerness and, non, you know, transgender. There's so many different, just as there is as any other type of gender, you know, yeah. or people or whatever. But I think it's important to sort of open it up as much as you're comfortable, mm. I guess. And in that way, for me to understand it is sort of like how it relates to your work. Yeah. Yep. And I find that fascinating that you're very public in so many ways, but then so kind of, as you said, um, hidden in so many ways. And that's something that you're obviously aware of. But do you think, can you foresee that um, ch- changing in any in any way? Um, <laughs> I'm sure sense? that it will. I'm sure it's going to evolve and like um, that what I make will change over time. I mean, I hope it will. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess... Um, it's interesting to me that the things that I do are more and more about like uh, expressing something of trans identity that doesn't rely on being able to see it visually. Mm. Like I think I am predominantly a visual artist, but I'm so interested in voices. Mm. So this format of a podcast is actually <laughs> quite apt to to things that I am kind of working on and thinking about. So the voice and also like uh, or having images of a body that cannot be kind of easily pulled apart or identified yeah. is I think really fascinating mm. and and I really believe that like representation is so important and there need to be um, really proud open images of gender discretion or gender nonconformity mm. and that's really important work but I don't necessarily think that it's my work mm. and there has to be space for you know like multiple avenues for making work that's about representation and making work that's about the right to be invisible or mm. to opt out or mm. I mean I think even the term non-binary sometimes gets used like as a political term mm. um, to mean basically no faith in really? the binary yeah or just to get against the binary or something I think sometimes it's used that way mm. No faith in sort of like the normal way of doing things. I don't. I, I don't read it as that. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I. I don't know. I guess it's just something that you're given as a term, and we terms constantly change. And this is something that I also find fascinating, parallel to your work, is that idea of the limitations of language, which mm. I, I get so strongly from your work. And I'm I'm also obsessed with language and mm. the way that it can be so powerful. You know, mm. one word can just be so powerful but there are such limitations in that as well and Mm. I feel like with your work you have this ability to kind of open it up to bring a whole lot more ambiguity into you know words but not just words actions Mm. tones Mm. you know repetition Mm. rhythm um is that something that you're you know obviously conscious of yeah that's yeah for sure um conscious of but uh I think for me working with those things is really about kind of becoming obsessed with them and then allowing them to kind of disintegrate and fall apart Mm. instead of um, planning or something. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not calculated at all. That's right. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, so that thing about um, language, uh, the misuse of language or, like, um, identifying where language fails us, Mm. um, to come back 
just briefly to the word non-binary yeah. as well, because I think like it is a it is a space or like that word alludes to um, like a experiential realm that doesn't look one way or mm-hmm. sound one way. But I think also like semantically it's interesting because it's defined negatively. It's, yes, it's, it's saying non- not woman, mm-hmm. not man, mm-hmm. something kind of beyond or between. Um, mm. So what do you prefer? How do I prefer to yeah. be spoken about yeah. or addressed? Um, I use the word non-binary, yeah. but I think it's insufficient. Mm, I do too, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So has it not come then, the word? Like, has um, is, is the word not come along then? That's that's right, you know. Um, well, it's I not just negative. feel like words are never going to be sufficient. No. <laughs> but I, I, I like the word non-binary even though I feel that it's not enough for me because it follows a kind of logic that's familiar to me because I grew up in this really unique educational environment that Mm. taught me some really core ideas around I am not this body, I'm not my thoughts, Mm -hmm. I'm not my emotions. So um, kind of pairing back things that are ephemeral and changing to something other than that. So Mm. it feels like a way of thinking or speaking that's really like been with me for a long time. And so that kind of learning that you talk about came from did that come from your parents or from school environment or specifically um, that way of thinking? That came from uh, the primary school that I went to, hmm. which was a small independent primary school that taught. Um, it was a really interesting environment to be in as a small child, but it taught um, the philosophical tenets of Advaita Vedanta, which is a Hindu philosophy, which is oh. so strange as like a five-year-old white mm. Australian kid. That's great. Um, and that primary school, uh, I was sent there by my parents who were before my lifetime members of the School of Philosophy, which is like an international organisation that follows the same philosophies. So, right. Um, it was in line with their beliefs. Yeah. Or they're just their questioning, I guess, or their, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Amazing. Hmm. I do think that those early childhood, um, I don't know, experiences or memories play such, you know, it, for everyone it's totally different. Like you either own them and they, hmm. you know, you kind of celebrate them or you you rile against them sort hmm. of for the rest of, you know. I, hmm. I myself had many different primary schools and hmm. many different people that I met and, you know, parents separated and a whole lot of crazy stuff happened for me and, and I choose to see that as a positive thing and always have but then you speak to people about trauma of separation or like changing house every year and it's sort of this thing they work through for the rest of their Mm. life in therapy or whatever but for me I've always thought of myself as really lucky Mm. um and I guess that's that you know putting a negative inflection on things or a positive thing and on onto your what you are like your past your present there's something that Recently, I've been aware you are in a lot in more control of than you might imagine, you know, whether your situation is positive or mm-hmm. negative. But, I mean, I guess going back to that non, non-binary, it's kind of like a, um, not a, not a double negative, but it's almost like assuming, for me, it's like binary seems kind of restrictive, mm-hmm. you know, for anyone, all mm-hmm. of us. So non-binary then makes it a positive, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even though non is a negative word. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, it's like a, it's like offering an alternative, mm. which is a good thing. Outside of the binary might be more mm. 
positive way of saying um, What else I want? What I wanted to talk to you about, yeah, language. Um, oh, yeah, about, I guess, being social. You know, like I, something I noticed recently um, on, well, I can't remember what I read it on, but that you opting out of social media for a little bit, like all of mm. us need to, and you said, um, I'm out of here because social media doesn't feel very social right now. And mm. I just thought that was a really interesting kind of phrase and that we all assume this is a way of connecting. But, you know, do you want to talk a bit about that idea of connection through digital media? Yeah, I think it's been like super important to the formation of me as an adult person. Hmm. Um like, I grew up in the generation of people who were sort of the first people to use the internet from mm. a young age. Digital native. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> like, um, I love email. <laughs> like, that's one of my preferred modalities for communicating because you yeah. can really think through something and write what you really mean mm. and it's got sort of more space around it than kind of immediate chat platforms or whatever. You're but good on email. You're very quick. Am I? Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> And I'll probably make a point of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but social media as an asocial mm. or not very social um, way to kind of connect with people. I don't know. I I think it's it's limited. Like it's got it's done so much for me. It's saved me. Like in my growing up, it yeah. was a way to communicate with people who. Uh, gave me a sense of I have a future. Hmm. Like I can grow up and live in the world. That's amazing. Yeah. That weren't really in important. your vicinity, I guess. Absolutely uh, not. In different countries. No, even just, in Australia, yeah. but just people in communities that I didn't have contact with. Um, Physical contact with, yeah. Yeah, or any kind of proximity to. And, and I realise how important it is as like a way to uh, garner attention or like mm. coagulate people <laughs> together in real space um a tool yeah it's a tool well recently you had you know fairly succinct um experience with that do you want to talk a little bit about using that those platforms to you know for your campaign oh sure um yeah well that's that's like a great mm. example mm. it's amazing um, and one that i had i really had um no comprehension of whether it was going to work out or not at the mm. start. I was terrified. You'd so, never crowdsourced anything before? No. Mm, amazing. Um, yeah, so I ran a campaign um, which I have so many conflicting feelings about, which I could touch on, but um, campaign uh, essentially selling artworks in exchange for donations to have surgery. Mm. Uh, and so I managed to raise $10,000 um, through the internet. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? It's crazy. And but it's through people at the ends of the internet and it's right. through empathy and understanding mm. and support, which, mm. you know, it's important that you know that. Yeah, but I think that experience as well, like I realised um, how abstract that platform is. You mm. can't see people and shake their hand and say, <laughs> thank you so much. You, they don't get to see, like, the tears I've cried or mm. they don't get to feel the feelings or sort of, like, see my response to what to what they've given me, which is such a precious thing. But you're pretty good at communicating that. Like, I think that's part of your gift as an artist is that you're very good at communicating these un, non-physical emotions. Like, it's part of your skill set. Mm. And so I guess if it's not going <laughs> to, if that platform's not 
not going to work for you then. It's not going to work for, for anyone because you do feel, I mean, I, I felt like as part of that campaign, everyone was quite, um, well, I know I was, but everyone was sort of just with you on that. Like no one sort of dipped in and then left. Mm-hmm. Everyone followed it and mm-hmm. kept checking in on it and you were quite generous sharing that, which I understand must have been pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Well, it is, it's hard on a number of levels. It's like hard because, um, like that's, that's kind of like my artistic modality, I guess, is to like look at the things that are difficult and like try and restructure them or or turn them into a a source of empowerment in (laughs) some form. So I made these monotype prints with my tits (laughs) and sold those to people. And the the monotypes had words embedded in them Mm. referring to kind of, um, experiences of dysphoria. Um, words like, I remember passing. I can't yeah. remember the other words. Um, dog ear mm. um, and weird. Mm. So the word, I guess the word passing is probably the one that people can kind of mm. create associations with most easily as a, as a word that refers to um, being able to pass in social settings as a man or a woman or or whoever you are. I didn't even think of it like that. Oh, cool. <laughs> I thought of it like, um, you know, passing through. Passing by. Yeah. Yeah. Like well, changing or hmm. time passing. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, well, I guess it, it pulls all of those things mm. into itself, which was really interesting. I, I guess the discrepancy of, like, having a lot of difficult, um, very present, visceral feelings and turning that into a commodity. Hmm. Which is sort of like an analogy for what the art world is. Yep, pretty much. Mm. So there was that <laughs> not for side everyone, of it. not for everyone, but for a lot That's of us. True. Yeah. Mm. So there was that side of it is actually challenging that that world that you've chosen to be part of, where you. Yeah, it's a bit contentious, and yeah. um, I was I was really afraid that those artworks would be distasteful for people, and that that would kind of um, mm. be a barrier. And then, and then, actually, I had a really great chat with my counselor about it, and they were like, "People appreciate artworks for so many different reasons. People appreciate artworks that are confronting because they're confronting, of course. And people appreciate artworks that are vulnerable for that mm-hmm. vulnerability. Yeah. So it's like, and to be honest, I, I mean, I would have been part of that without the artwork anyway. Mm. Like, I think anyone that's met you or seen you perform would have, would have donated to that campaign without getting anything back. So uh, I think actually they were bonuses really. Like and I know that for, I know that for you it probably felt integral to challenge that notion of um you know doing something for the money, but I actually don't think that that's what it's about at all. I think it's about people understanding you and where you need to go and helping you do that. Like it's you know, I don't think exchange always has to be, you know, that you get something back, but then yeah. I think it's important to give things. Like like when I think about performance, I think of it as giving a performance. Mm. Like it's like a thing that I made, but it, I need it to be like for other people. <laughs> some Does level. It, is it sort of like um if if it's not it it didn't happen? <laughs> for you? I mean is that sort of important that other people experience it to for it to be real? Mm. I'm not sure. Mm. Because, I I mean, I think this comes up with lots of chats that I've had with people about making art and why we Mm. do it. Mm. Um, And often there's that 
whether it comes from that sort of understanding of, you know, the canon of art, like until someone buys it, is it worthy? Until it's in a museum, is it worthy? Until it just comes off your hand or out of your voice, is it even real? You know, mm. I think there's these different mm. degrees of what we're taught makes a valid idea. But it, it is interesting how now I think there's a lot more grey area around that and particularly with dance being so kind of important right now and that exchange of sort of gestures as um, a kind of economy really like is happening now that mm-hmm. we don't, that makes it just as real. I mean, you don't, you know, it's interesting what territory. Is, what does real mean there? Well, you? what does real mean there? That's, I mean, that's something that's, mm. it's interesting because everything's real or fake no matter which way you look at it. But real artwork, I guess I'm referring to it as like, you know, I, I guess we've always been taught that unless it's within this framework it's sort of not whatever, it's just some weird thing you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like the framework gives it value. Or, or something. Or meaning. Or meaning, yeah. I guess it is, it's that thing of like the more people who see the artwork. Like, it, well, I guess for me, my interest is in being able to allow people to see the thing. Mm. Um, and there are, there are like, like very well established formats for making that possible, i.e., galleries and institutes. Mm. Traditional formats. Yeah. But then you have lots of different avenues as well. That's right. And and I th- like I think to me what's what's interesting for me is being able to do a thing that that does go like through the traditional <laughs> well travelled route. Mm-hmm. And because that's where like I think it's so interesting, like the big galleries and the big institutes um are frequented by people who don't who don't come from an art world background or whatever and I think that's where you can actually like put a thing that will reach people who are otherwise un- uh, disconnected or like unable to contact that thing mm. in their lives yeah maybe that's really sort of a utopic vision <laughs> and maybe I'll, I'll get like totally disillusioned really soon <laughs> maybe I, don't know. I hope not I hope <laughs> not but I think at some point we all have that utopian vision of what art can achieve and I like to think that all artists kind of hang on to that in some way even if they hang on to it with a sort of filter of jaded you know, <laughs> nihilism or something over the top of it. But I think you need to in order to, to persist at being an artist because there's kind of no other real reasons, is there? <laughs> Apart from working through your own things, um, meeting people, talking to mm. people. But the power in that sharing is it's real. And I think for, for you know, I think for you it's re- it's it's amazing that that, gallery world is something that you have just sort of effortlessly fallen into or accepted or embraced because traditionally that's a difficult thing to do with the type of work that you're making. I mean, there's a long history of performance artists who have done it, but um, I can't imagine it's an easy path to take, you know, because you have to constantly justify what you're doing. You have to pitch it. You have to write like a thing around it. You Mm. have to sort of say what parameters it will fall within, you know, what people might get out of it. You, you mm-hmm. almost have to sell it before you even do it. Right. And you don't necessarily know what it is you're going to do. I know. So that's our skill in itself, mm-hmm. allowing for that sort of breadth of experience without actually kind of even doing it yet or going there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but you seem to be, the skill seems to have already settled in. You seem to be kind of. Well, I yeah, like it. Uh... It's a learnt skill. Mm. Like I'm fortunate in my education. Yeah. Really fortunate. 
So it's not just a sort of magical thing that suddenly happened or like mm. a natural talent or whatever. I'm really lucky. Mm. Um, and I guess you're also helping educate other people to be able to do that as well. And that's something that, um, you know, we shouldn't overlook is that by you actually doing what you do, other people either um, feel like they can also do that or they learn that there are people like you that need support in order to do that and allow other people to do it. And that's something that is not, it's not an easy position to take, but you sort of forging away is really important. But something on that, I guess, is just... um, something that I noticed you have been doing in your personal life, I guess, is having creating your home as a space for, um, and you don't need to talk about this if you don't want to, but mm-hmm. um, I just read it on Facebook because mm-hmm. I was like, I want to talk to you about that because yeah, cool. I didn't know you did that. So mm. can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, that's like really very important to me. Yeah, so I, I host a, I call it a sharing circle, which is just a, group of people, uh, some of them strangers and some of them people I know, who come to my house and well, once a fortnight and we uh, just talk about our lives. Hmm. Um, it's like a no feedback kind of group environment. So mm-hmm. people are given the chance to say whatever they're experiencing without um, feedback or critique or advice. Mm-hmm which is a very precious thing in this world. <laughs> it's very rare to be heard and not questioned. Mm. I think especially if you're of a gender non-normative kind of background um, or exploring that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're really rarely given the chance to just express or speak. It's always um, required that we kind of validate our experience in some form. Mm. So um, it's, it's like the, such a source of power. I think mm. that space and every time it happens I'm totally blown away by people it's about mm, eight people or it's capped at eight people and we just come together and drink tea it's like <laughs> and talk about um all of the stuff that's going down yeah, yeah yeah and that changes every two weeks that people change people change um but now I'm in this really unique and precious situation of knowing people and Knowing people but not knowing them at the same time. Hmm. Knowing people by their first name. Knowing people by their pain, really, Hmm. but not knowing where they live, not knowing what they do for work, not knowing their financial situation. Um, That's amazing. And having known these people for a few years, like, Hmm. um, yeah. And how did that start? Did you initiate that? Um, It started by when I moved to Melbourne, I um, got involved with a really <laughs> interesting um some would call it a sex cult oh yeah um others would call it like a a spiritual kind of i don't know community <laughs> um <laughs> that was run by this person who's kind of become who became a good friend and then an acquaintance and whatever but mm. um that person ran these um, groups for women to to basically do the same thing, speak about their lives, speak about their experience of gender and sexuality. And I went along to one of those groups and I said at the first one, like, oh, this feels kind of weird. Like I don't identify as a woman, but mm. I'm, I'm kind of here because I'm um, kind of peripheral to this community and I'm interested in kind of connecting with people. So um, 
as time went on and I realized actually it's really uncomfortable to try and continue to identify as a woman. I tried to find something parallel in the trans community and it didn't exist. Hmm. So so you made it. Yep. That, I mean, I think for anyone listening, which is always nice at some point in the chats to, to remember that there's people. <laughs> <laughs> but for anyone listening that is um, maybe feeling like in any way their, their practice or themselves sit outside of the usual boxes that we're meant to drop into is it's always an option to do that. Mm-hmm. And more and more I realise that the people I'm really drawn to um, as artists um, often have that same story mm-hmm. where they've created um, a space or a world, which is where the whole concept for this these talks came from, yep. is that people that I really respect are people that have maybe thought, oh, I don't really... This isn't right. I've tried all the different options. Mm. I'm not really this. I'm not really that. I'm not a painter. I'm not a sculptor. They're the basic ones, you know. Mm-hmm. And so instead of just saying, oh, I failed then or, uh, you know, I'm out mm. or I'm the weirdo or whatever, it's creating a space where they can yeah. find other people like that, yeah. Yeah, I think it's like, and sometimes it's not just about, oh, I failed or I'm a weirdo. It's mm. It's actually about like, well, what is necessary to survival yeah. as well? How do I keep going? Yeah. And and you need other people to keep going. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. and that's what sort of cohered this fortnightly group of people. Mm. But I really love that approach that you don't necessarily need other people to um, tell you what you're doing right or what you're doing wrong or give you feedback, that you just need other people to sort of, I don't know, share it with or something. Mm. Or, I, or is it to identify with? It's sort of just to acknowledge and understand. Because it's all of those things. Mm. Yeah, like this, those groups of people, even though we're, you know, silent most of the time because we're listening to one person speaking, there's a lot of head nodding and mm-hmm and mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> sort yeah. of like that just there's a sense of familiarity in the room. And it, it really is like we create a world in that space in my garage. <laughs> it's really fascinating though because in some ways I think with your work, with your performances and being having stood in a circle around, you know, you, it's almost the same thing that you're doing. Like it actually kind of is the same mm-hmm. thing that you're doing is creating this kind of information that comes from you and what you've experienced and then other people because that's what happened there is people nodding, crying, you mm. know, not just taking it in objectively, not just taking it in coldly, actually sort of, you know, feeling, understanding it and feeling it through their bodies almost, mm-hmm. you know. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, so it does obviously inform your work as well. Yeah, and it's, it's really like I think key that you said the word bodies there mm. because gender is an experience that happens in bodies. Mm. Like no matter how much we sort of theorise it, it still comes back to a body Yeah, inevitably. Which is problematic and also, like, really good to remember. Yeah. Yep. And, I mean, I have two young kids and I'm constantly thinking about that difference of bodies and Mm. how you teach that or don't teach that or, like, leave it open or accidentally close things off, you know, Mm -hmm. constantly. I think as a parent, thinking about how to um, just give them every opportunity that they possibly can have to realise that gender themselves. Mm -hmm. But... You know, in this in this time of sort of increasing toxic max- masculinity and kind of crazy, scary stuff like that, it's something that I'm, you know, with boys I'm super conscious of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also conscious of not 
inflicting my, them with my own experience of gender or, you know, what I've been through as a woman, you know, onto two young boys, I don't have a daughter. I don't know. That mm -hmm. stuff is constantly, as a parent, you know, playing mm -hmm. around in my head. Mm -hmm. But as creative people, you do play a role in other people's lives, you know, mm. whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that you're very much like that. Like I do think that um, a lot of people might not even know you to say hello to you but are very aware of sort of what you're doing at the moment. Mm. It's kind of a responsibility in that mm. as well. Yeah. And, um, it, yeah, it's like total. it has definitely altered myself my perception of myself and um, it's been really interesting mm. and really like a, I think it's still unfolding, um, understanding how to, uh, I don't know, kind of how other people see me. I mean, mm. like that's probably just a question that everybody asks themselves all I, the time. I how do other so. people see me and yeah. like what? what is it that they're like receiving from my communication? Is it what, am I coming across in the way that I wish to be seen or heard? And how is that? What do you mean? How do you wish to be seen or heard? Um, I, I don't want to like, <laughs> I don't want to give one answer because I, I don't think there is one answer. Like just. Um, there must be. I mean, when you think about that, like what, what would you be disappointed in if someone said to you, well, I see you as, what would be a disappointing response for you? Um, I don't, I don't, oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, um, you don't have to answer. But. No, it's like a really good question, but I guess I've never asked myself that. So, I, like, nothing kind of pops into my head about how do I mm. not want to be seen. Um, I guess I fear that I'm not very articulate and I wonder if people. I don't think that's the truth. <laughs> I mean, I've, I was just thinking about it myself. Like, I don't. I think the worst thing that I would want to be seen as is is closed off to other possibilities. You know, like I would hate to be seen as um, a bigot. Mm. I think that's possibly the worst way that I'd want to be seen. Mm. But then, in terms of gender, I mean, I yeah, like that's a whole other thing. And often, I do think you know, with all the stuff around being femme or not femme I've never really thought about it very much and <laughs> except again with kids you know they're like why you mm. put that stuff on your eyelashes <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's so curious how like it can be a thing that people don't think about that's what amazes mm. me like that it's just this ingrained kind mm. of uh set of ways of being that people kind of naturally kind of adopt or whatever well I you don't my mum do it yeah it's like <laughs> you don't think about it until you suddenly make another person or whatever or like yeah. or um yeah oh made another person <laughs> <laughs> better <Ta -da>. think about <laughs> it <laughs> that happened <laughs> shit what do i believe in again <laughs> sort of like that though I'll and it, yeah. and it is um I mean, of course I've thought about it and you think about how you cut your hair and you think about what clothes you wear, but I like to think that I justify it on just how I feel. Like, I feel like doing it. And that is what I said to my boys is like, well, I feel like it because it makes me feel, you know, it frames my eyes better. Hmm. Like that's what I said. Hmm. And then they're like, but you do it when you go out. <laughs> you don't do it when you're at home. Hmm. Like, well, yeah. I mean, there's so many kind of 
different answers to that. And I guess it's just that what you feel comfortable with or whatever. But And I think it's also like this this thing about, well, do what makes you feel comfortable. It's actually, it doesn't always end up with you feeling comfortable because, <laughs> you know, you might feel like I feel good wearing like diamonds and yeah. gold and like shiny <laughs> yeah. bling stuff yeah. not that i have the money to afford yeah. those things yeah, like, i was gonna say i haven't plastic, seen you, wearing you know? diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> well i mean like the reason why i don't all the time is because like, i'm really conscious that that like is a discrepancy with my facial hair or, like that's a discrepancy with my my voice if we're talking about mm. like um how you come like, across yeah, or, or if we want to, like, think in terms of, like, expectations or, like, the normative ways of understanding, like, mm. what a what a person should and shouldn't do. Um, so even though that's a thing I might want and might make me feel good, mm. doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to feel good on the street because I'm going to be hyper-conscious of what people are, like, how people are responding or what people are thinking. Mm. And it's not an unfounded thought because I have had people being aggressive towards me in mm. public. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? Because uh, we all have our ways. Yeah, we all have our ways. Um, that, that That's, like, entirely dependent on the Moody. individual oh, the, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. what they're kind of presenting, but I, I try and talk to people. Talk to like, people. Like, I try and just be, you know, I try and remember that I, I'm not accountable to other people's expectations and I try and explain that to them. Really? Mm. That's, a, that's a very generous thing to do. I would just probably... Well, I think <laughs> what happens is they realise, like, they've got their own screwed up lim- mm. limits on what they're allowed to do yeah. and what they're not allowed to do. And, it of- like, their fear often comes from feeling like, how come you have the right to this? Where, where When I have tried so hard mm. to contain myself and to... Or, or maybe it's, like, they don't necessarily want to appear or look how I want to or how I do, yeah. but it's like a, a thing of, um, yeah, why did why are you allowed to get away with it? I'm not think, okay with that. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about it in the last two days because um, a mutual friend of, of mine and other performers in Melbourne was harassed recently on the weekend for wearing a, he was doing a performance wearing a pink unitard, like a weightlifter's unitard, not even a mankini, just a unitard. <laughs> Um, miss, 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 um, quoted as a mankini, but, um, you know, he's, he's a performer, physical performer, had a permit to do it and was approached by a right wing fascist, horrible, horrible human being and filmed and, um, mm-hmm. and it, yeah, I mean, apart from feeling hugely angry on his behalf, just furious, like I've been furious for two days, but, um, then you start to think, well, why? And I guess this is what you're talking about is why did he do that? Apart from you know, trying to garner followers or whatever, filming it. That's why he did it. But then, mm. but deep down he must have somehow believed in that in order to do that. And then is it because, I don't think it's because he feels like he's not allowed to do that. It's mm. it's, it's a deep-seated kind of belief in that a, a man shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. It's like shouldn't wear a colour, shouldn't wear a tight-fitting outfit. You know, there's mm. heaps of examples throughout history mm. where men 
in a swimming team or uh, there's footage of him wearing Speedos, less uh-huh. less material, <laughs> yeah. you know, that he's posted online. Mm. So where does it, is it the colour? Mm. Like that's what it started me thinking. It's like, mm-hmm. is it because it's pink? Mm-hmm. It's Probably. just so crazy that you can have such a heated, violent response in public, mm. even to the police, over a colour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like the power of, I mean, mm. even beyond a word, just a colour. Mm. And pink used to be a colour for boys. It did, yeah. All the ruffly shirts and mm. stuff, they were all pink. Mm-hmm. I do, I mean, this is a whole other conversation <laughs> about colour. Don't get me started on it. But, um, yeah, I do think that there's, and it does tie back into your practice, I guess, is that that we really do need to check what, in terms of symbols and signs and language, you know, what we use and how we use it and what mm. we believe in and what we put, like, so much energy and faith into is possibly not that kind of set in stone and not that important sometimes mm. yeah <laughs> can be more slippery can be more open mm. on that note of keeping things open and closed and <laughs> finishing things off i'd really like to thank you i mean time's just flown by because i'm so involved in this and i'd just like to thank you archie for being part of the project because essentially you were the one person that i desperately really wanted to talk to so thanks for mm. being here thanks so much too Attraction in my head. I'd be at my desk for days writing the sums and thinking about Y and X. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, at the What a truly fascinating artist. Someone who is really committed to exploring identity through a series of processes, not just the visual. I love the way that Archie seems to work everything out through their body. The way they said at the beginning of our conversation, I get a bit obsessed with one idea, going over and over it. And then I ask, how's it going to feel in my body? Not in a calculated or constructed way. It struck me that Archie uses a very true and grounded way of working. It made a lot of sense to learn that Archie was educated as a kid in the Hindu teachings of Vedanta. Beyond their fascination with language and the way it both fails and connects us, there seems to be the underpinning of these words. I am not my body. I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my emotions. On that note, it's time for me to go and work out what I'm not. This conversation was hosted by me, Ty Snaith. I'm an artist, for those of you who don't know my work. I'm actually making a series of artworks inspired by each of these conversations. If you're interested, the first iteration is showing now at Sarah Scout Presents in Collins Street, Melbourne, and running until the 10th of November 2018. After that, the documentation will live on my website. For more information about the project and the artists I've been speaking to, head to tysnaith.com. Thanks to my audio producer, Beck Fari, and Melbourne musician, Fia, spelt P-H-I-A, for letting us use this track, End of the Day, from her album, The Ocean of Everything. In this episode, we heard an untitled piece of music by Archie Barry, with audio production by Sean Lowry. Thanks to Archie for supplying the audio. 
This podcast was originally conceived as part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. This second season and the exhibition is supported by the Australia Council for the Arts. The